In this week's update, panic buying in the US, a huge positive indicator, and how to dramatically improve the probability of far higher returns. My name's Gary Davis. As always, this is general advice only, and please remember to like and subscribe to the video. Uh, my voice might sound a little flat this morning. I think I've picked something up in my travels in the last uh, week or 10 days, but there's no question I'm absolutely bubbling with what happened in the US market um, to finish the week. <laughs> so I'll do my best to uh, <laughs> to sound halfway normal. Okay, there are numerous factors that are lining up, um, just a couple of them. S seasonality is really good. Um, September is recognised historically as probably the weakest month of the year, and the ending weeks of October are recognised as probably being the worst weeks of the year, and that was certainly how it played out. It was pretty horrid. But now we're into a seasonally much stronger uh, period and the market had become significantly oversold. The market is interpreting that the Fed is giving them a bit more hope that, you know, maybe their, their stated aim, which was a couple of years ago, of engine <laughs> engineering a, uh, a soft landing, um, they may be just in the process of, of achieving that because inflation is heading down and GDP is accelerating. So, I mean, that's the best of both worlds. Now, that can always change around, of course, and the market is so flighty these days that it only takes a single economic data point to ruffle the feathers. But nevertheless, at this point in time, that is how things look. But there's, there's always a, a but with these sort of situations, particularly in these kind of markets. Stock selection remains critical you know, please do not think that you can just go and buy the market or the index or the regular household names and do well because there's an extremely high chance that you won't. And that'll become evident. I talk about it every week, been talking about it every week for years, but it'll become evident again during this video. So stock selection remains absolutely critical. There are a handful of key factors that will significantly raise the odds of getting a well above average return. So you've got to have two things. The company has to be a growth company to have the potential to return 30, 40, 50% per annum over multiple years. But it also has to have a high probability of being achieved. There's thousands of stocks that have got that potential. You look at any tiny little miner has, um, has got that potential, but hardly any of them have got that really high probability. So that's the second part of it. Those two things go hand in hand. And it's an absolute fact, and members know this, that I have at least <coughs> 25 quality stocks, and I'm talking stocks of the highest quality with respect to their balance sheet, the quality of their management, their growth runway, all those sort of things that are important, their return on equity, I've got at least 25 that have been returning greater than 20% total average returns, and it's capital gain plus dividend, averaged over the last five, three and five year periods. That's a fact, and no one can argue with that. Now, I'm making no statement about what will happen in the next three to five years, but just consider if you've got, let's say, 15 of those sort of stocks now, a couple aren't going to produce, and quite a few are probably just going to produce 
maybe a more average return, you know, you're sort of 20, 25% because a lot of the gains were, you know, they had a big surge two years ago or three years ago that has kicked those averages up. But equally, there is going to be a couple that uh, are going to produce very, very substantial returns uh, over a period of one to two years. And when you average it all out, I mean, that's that's what you want. So <coughs> stock selection, absolutely critical. Let's jump into the American market. <laughs> the S&P ended up rising almost <coughs> 6% for the week, which is very impressive. And also what was impressive is the breadth was extremely impressive. And it even extended to the, you know, the most speculative part of the market, Kathy Wood's ETFs, which are you know, mostly stocks that don't have terribly good visibility towards profit. And the market has absolutely slammed them for the last couple of years. But even those five or six Kathy Wood ETFs have had a huge surge. And we'll, I won't look at those, but I'll look at some other stocks just to show you what I mean. So there's huge gaps. I've got a watch list of American stocks that's close to 200. And I've got some others that are in other watch lists. So there would be definitely hundreds of stocks where there were huge gaps up on Thursday and Friday, um, significant increases in volume, and it almost smells like panic buying. Like the fear of missing out was, you know, was undisputable. So here's the S&P, five sessions to, to the upside last week, and it basically regained all of the prior week's losses and some. So that's very impressive. And when you see multiple gaps like this, and these are big gaps for, uh, for an index like the S&P, they're huge gaps. So <laughs> that's the, the S&P, and let's just look at a few others. So this is the Russell 2000, really important, the broad-based, basically smaller cap stocks. Look at the Russell on Thursday and Friday, and look at the volumes. This is huge. Um, a huge move in um, in the Russell. Now, it doesn't guarantee you of anything, but, you know, wow, it, it does improve the odds, that's for sure, of it continuing, and particularly when you add in the seasonality. This is mid-cap 400s, just to show that it's not just maybe some big tech stocks and, and a lot of smaller beaten down small caps, but through the mid mid-caps as well, which could be, Stocks with market caps of 10 to 100 billion. So very, very significant moves on Thursday and Friday. Here's a couple of stocks. These aren't recommendations at, by any stretch of the imagination. These stocks, these are stocks that I'm not interested in. But I'm showing the chart because it typifies the week. There's been a huge sentiment shift. So let's just back the last couple of days out. Okay, so up until Tuesday, up until the finish of Monday, we were down, 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 and things looked you know, pretty, pretty sore. Um, we got a bit of a bounce on uh, at the end of Monday, and then Tuesday was better, um, but not spectacularly so. And then Wednesday, we got a huge gap down. Now, that could have been earnings related. That's, that's possible. I'm not sure. So big gap down and then traded down 
but then turn around, massive sentiment shift to the upside. And then if we add in Thursday and Friday, look at the volumes, big gaps and, uh, and volumes. So that is fairly typical of hundreds and hundreds of stocks. And you just don't get that unless you've got a fair income shift in sentiment. This is another stock called Roku. Again, the stock, it's not important. Hits the price action over the last couple of days. Just absolutely massive. Add the volume. And Shopify is another one. All right, so hopefully you've got my point. This was a massive shift in sentiment. All right, so we'll start with the NASDAQ 100 compared to the S&P. Um, and you can see we've got a bit of an upward bias. There's definitely an upward bias to this in terms of relative performance to the, the S&P. So the market's been awful for, um, for the best part of two months. But the relative <laughs> performance, um, you know, money was not leaving the more aggressive sectors and flooding into the, the more defensive sectors. Look at semiconductors versus uh, the S&P. Similarly, it's just basically performing in line. Uh, SMH in absolute terms, we had a mildly sloping downward channel and then we've got you know, gap and gap heading back towards the top of the channel. <laughs> a couple of others, this is the sectors, again, on a relative basis over the last uh, quarter. Um, if we go in and look at it over the last <clears throat> fortnight, you can see that materials, finance, um, consumer discretionary, um, and technology definitely led the way. Staples did a little bit of picking up, but it's a real mixed bag. There's no, no particular bias there, except the top ones are all the more aggressive type stocks. And in the Australian market, um, over the last quarter, we've got finance, leading materials, small caps really picking up, and energy. Let's have a look at the last couple of weeks just to see if anything's changed. And you can see over the last two weeks, materials has picked up quite dramatically. Now, part of that is the iron ore price with respect to uh, the major iron ore stocks. But, you know, that's that's pretty impressive in the Australian market. And we'll come back to more of that. Healthcare has rebounded after a very ordinary three or four months. The US dollar index uh, dipped very sharply down to 105. The 10-year yield was over five, just I think it was only the week before last was above, up above five, and now we're down to 4.5. That's a huge move. So it's a 10% change in the 10-year yield. The VIX was 22, now it's down to 15. So the sentiment definitely has changed uh, enormously. And the 10-year, two-year spread, not a lot of change there. All right, the Australian market, our dollar, um, edged up 64 and a half. Um, our index regained the key 6,900 level, uh, needed to do that from a technical perspective. Um, ended up rising 2.2% across the week, but I suspect we might have a pretty robust Monday. If we don't, then it tells you something about the, the money flows in the Australian market. So it's reclaimed the, the critical 6,900 level, which was the breakdown level, and it needed to do that quickly. 
Um, and it was very broadly based buying on Friday. Again, very similar to the US. It wasn't just the index. It wasn't just some of the major stocks. This was huge buying across a, a lot of the market. The winners last week, real estate, infotech and healthcare were the key stocks. So let's go and look at those indices. Just before I do that, we'll have a look at the currencies. So that's DXY, quite a sharp move on Friday. And I guess that's consistent with the yield coming off quite sharply. And the Aussie dollar also had three quite positive uh, sessions to the upside. Here's materials. They're below the 200-day moving average, which is still pointing down, but it hasn't stopped them from being the outperformer over the last couple of weeks. All of the sectors in our market look pretty sad, but this one is a bit less sad, if you like. All right, there's the breakdown on the 6,900 level. That was important from a psychology point of view, but you can see Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, uh, and rise in volumes. That's a very meaningful move. That's Infotech, a couple of good sessions there. Healthcare, also three good sessions in a row to, uh, to finish the week. And there's certainly some, some good buying in the healthcare majors. And finally, energy. So energy was leading the way in Australia, but it's sort of gone into a bit of hibernation of late. So that's the Australian market. Let's have a look at gold. Gold on a weekly. <coughs> We managed to to pop up as high as 2013, finished at 1993, but well off the lows. So that's um, that's encouraging. If we look at that on a daily uh, basis, you can see gold did kick up, helped by the American dollar on Friday night. So just back on the Australian index again, stats are a courtesy of Roger Montgomery a day or so ago. But I've, I mean, I've been pointing to this for years. The fact that if you if your portfolio broadly mimics the ASX 200, then you've really had a pretty poor performance because there has been no capital gain since 2007. And during most of that period from 2007 till 2022, um, and most of that was when decline, there were declining rates and there was heaps of government stimulus. So excluding dividends, no price gain for um, the last, um, what is that, 16 years. And part of the reason for that, in fact, a heck of a lot of the reason for that is that Australian investors are not doing themselves any service at all by demanding that companies pay significant dividends because it's stealing, it's taking away capital that could be used for reinvestment. And there's plenty of data to show that companies that pay small dividends and reinvest and reinvest, you look at Berkshire Hathaway is probably one of the greatest examples, never paid a dividend, but the returns are just, um, I don't know what they are, but they're, you know, they're probably well over 100,000%. So there's no question that companies that consistently pay out high dividends. Now, some companies just, you know, they just don't have the opportunity to reinvest and get a decent rate of return. And so giving money back to shareholders is perhaps the only alternative. But that's, to, to my way of thinking, that's a minority. It's not the majority. It's the easy way out too much. 
So that's why the ASX 200 has underperformed so dramatically um, for a long, long period of time. And I just don't think it's going to change because it's a cultural thing in Australia about fully frank dividends. Anyway, I've, I've covered that a hundred times before. All right, precious metals, gold fell $13 uh, to 1993. Um, but amongst that, central banks are on track for another year of record buying in, in this year. It was a bit of a steady week around the 2000 level, a bit, a bit above, bit, a bit below, but generally fairly steady. If you <laughs> translate that to Australian dollars, it's roughly 3100 which is still very profitable territory. And if we look at uh, GDXJ, it was quite a strong move in, uh, in global stocks to complete the week, so that was impressive. Turning to other commodities, copper um, about flat through 65. Nickel, it's really struggling down at $8. And crude oil came off from 90 down to almost 80. Uh, now, a little bit on lithium. Um, chemical prices remain under pressure, but this is transient. The only thing that's really unknown is what is the period of that transiency. It you know it will pass. Worst case scenario, probably another couple of years. Um, but these things can change dramatically because it's still a very immature market, the lithium market. The, the price discovery in China and the rest of Asia is still very immature, um, particularly in the spot market. Um, and there is all sorts of stocking and destocking activities which are not reflective of perhaps the you know the long term uh, fundamentals. So that's really confusing the landscape. Um, and certainly, some of the higher cost producers in China are being squeezed, which is an unsustainable situation. They're, they're going to have to stop doing what they're doing. There's no point in producing lithium chemicals and selling them for a loss. That's just dumb. And so it's the dynamics of boom and bust have definitely been applying here. So when chemical prices were sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars and spodumene was six to eight thousand dollars, then that encouraged or that allowed producers in China to, you know, the high cost producers to come into the market because they could still make a good dollar. But as the prices have fallen, you know, they're trying to hang on to what they've got, but now my understanding is they're now in loss-making territory. And so inevitably that bust causes those producers out of the market and prices rise again. Now, that's a dynamic that we can't know a lot about. Um, we've just got to watch the charts and take the cues from there. But the message here is that it's important to understand this is transient. So, you know, don't cut lithium off your Christmas card list. You know, lithium will still be a wonderful wealth generator of, over the next five to seven years. There's no question about that. <clears throat> There's a spot copper chart. I still can't, this, this spike down here um, in um, early to mid-October, I still can't find out whether that's real or not. Can't imagine it is real. If anyone knows, could you comment below this video if anyone knows whether this spike 
down here is real or not. I'm, I'm assuming for the time being that it's that it's not real. It's just something in their database, but I would have thought they would have corrected it by now. Now, copper inventories, the five-year inventories, I'll put it on a, quite a big picture level, and we've had quite a rise. <coughs> so if you go back to May, June, we were down at these really, really low levels. And there is a dynamic in the copper market which, you know, the argument goes something like this, that some of the producers of copper have just got to keep selling to keep the thing alive. And so they keep putting more tonnes into the market, which is keeping a lid on the price. So there is a big divergence between inventory levels, which up until the last few weeks were really quite low, and the copper price, which frustratingly just didn't seem to move. And again, I think if you look at the long-term dynamics, you've, you must conclude that, again, this is transient. There's the spot nickel chart, so we're just hanging around that $8 level. Wrapping it up, thankfully, because I'm nearly done, uh, <laughs> from a long-term investing point of view, an index fund is roughly returning dividends. That's reality. So if you want or need more than just dividend return, because you don't have you know, adequate reserves to get you through, then an index fund is just not going to get you where you want to go. And you know, there's a lot of people out there who need to start pulling their head out of the sand and recognising that this is not the solution. An index fund, for the vast majority of people, is just not the solution. And when you factor in the fact that we're now in a more inflationary environment, we've had a very significant reversal of 40-year falling inflation to now we're a couple of years into rising inflation um, and no real prospect of that changing for as far as the eye can see. So when you've got poor returns, below average returns, uh, and you've got an inflationary environment, it's going to get very, very uncomfortable for a lot of people. And I guess everyone's heard the, the expression, definition of sanity is keeping doing the same thing and expecting a, a different result. That's not going to happen, I wouldn't suspect. So I've covered this many, many times <laughs> in the past. What you want, high return on equity. This is not all, but these are the key ones. High return on equities, uh, astute reinvestment, significant board ownership. They're just a few. And, you know, that's what I do all day long in the Insiders Club and also in Portfolio Analyst. Um the rewards, if you can identify a group of those sort of stocks, the rewards are shown over time to be substantially larger than just companies that have got to focus on paying out 80 or 90% of, of their profits as a dividend. <clears throat> All right, portfolio analyst, last week I was doing a spot of travelling, so it was a week's break, and we'll be back in the saddle. I'll be obviously looking at what's happened in the first couple of days of this week, but I'm exceedingly optimistic that we've turned the corner and we'll have a good week. All right, there's the information on the website and my email address. And if I can kick this bug, whatever it is, I'll be back with you next Sunday. Cheers.